Hello, and live, you're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the earth. And this week, our joke about being heard in... Well, it's not a joke. It's not, it's, our, real, it's a possibility. Our legitimate possibility, but, you know, uh, is slightly more likely this week because we're actually going to be talking a bit about outer space. Uh, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but we're, we're going to describe the show in reverse order before we actually get down to it. So the end of the program is going to be an interview, Stefan, that you recorded recently. Yes. Tell the audience what they can look forward to at the end of the show. At the end of the show, yes. The end of the show is uh, the last of the interviews we conducted uh, for Big Ideas for 2019. Uh, and it's with Tara Suturin from uh, the Council of Canadians. Uh, and it is all about, it's a, it's actually quite apropos, I think, for the mm. news uh, that we're going to cover this week. Uh, because it's all about uh, the, the concept or the hope for a sort of global uh, rise of, uh, of, uh, of, of climate justice and climate climate justice movements um, and, and, and really justice-based uh, uh, fights against uh, climate change in all ways. And as you see, uh, as we get to the news, I think it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite fitting. I mm. think, and a, and a wonderful chat. Uh, so that's coming at the end of the show, right? Uh, yeah. But for, but before that, uh, throw back to you. What what what, what space were you right? About? So yeah, right before that, we're going to be talking to. We have yet another amazing connection with our uh, contacts over at the CBC Documentary uh, Channel. Nature of Things: The Wonder of Northern Lights. A look at our awesome and mysterious Aurora Borealis. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing director Tom Ranson. That's in the middle of the program. Uh, so for your weekly dose of uh, nature, awe, and science. Uh, giggles, I guess. I don't know. I find it interesting. Giggles? giggles? Sure. We're going with giggles. Yeah. Well, maybe science we'll giggles. Funny. Yeah, science giggles. And sure. nat- nature awe. Yes. Uh, that's going to be in a few minutes. But first, we have breaking, well, sort of breaking news uh, with our news report. Uh, Dave Huster, take it away. Yes. So um, on December 7th, 2018, the pipeline company Coastal Gas Link won a court injunction against indigenous land defenders of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, ordering them to open their checkpoint uh, to allow the company access to the sites where a natural gas pipeline is set to be built. Coastal Gas Link is a subsidiary of TransCanada Corporation, which has just this week changed its name to TC Energy in order to make it easier to expand operations in the U.S. and Mexico. Two camps have been set up in protest of the pipeline, and one of them, led by the Unistoten House Group, has been around since 2010 and has a healing center, and another one was put up in 2018 in order to block corporate access to unceded Wet'suwet'en land. The land defenders held their ground after the injunction, setting up another blockade and stating that an attempt by police to force them open would be an act of war. Earlier this month, the RCMP began amassing vehicles and personnel in the area near Houston, B.C. They then set up their own blockade of the road and denied anybody else access to the camps or the blockades. Then on January 7th, the RCMP, wielding bulldozers, wearing body armor, and carrying automatic weapons, breached the blockade and arrested 14 people. Tom Hennifer, vice president of Canadian Journalists for Free Expression, told APTN News, quote, It sounds like the RCMP is once again using every tactic that they can to bend the law as much as possible to prevent journalists from gaining access to sites. This is a tactic that is very commonly employed and is very difficult to fight against in the moment because police know that when when you've got a bunch of officers with guns telling people what they can and cannot do, it doesn't necessarily matter whether the law is on the RCMP's side or not because it takes too long for a journalist to get to a lawyer go to court and get an order to allow them to get on to the site. Wet'suwet'en chief Namex stated after the arrests, quote, Today was a perfect example of who steers the government, and it's absolutely industry. Industry told government how to direct the RCMP. 
the RCMP removed the fence at the access point, arrested people and have charged a number of them. They were following the law of the Wet'suwet'en. What happened today was our trespass laws were broken. But according to Canadian law, who is being steered by industry, they say that these people are now criminals. Now we need all Canadians to stand up and tell this government that they have to treat Indigenous people as human beings, hereditary chiefs as true powers of this Wet'suwet'en land. And we will never give up our rights, title, or jurisdiction, or authority to any form of government. The natural gas pipeline is a $4.7 billion, 670-kilometer project that will move liquefied natural gas from Dawson Creek to a marine terminal that has yet to be built near Kitimat. It's part of a $40 billion natural gas project planned for Kitimat, which is enthusiastically supported by BC uh, New Democratic Premier John Horgan and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. On Wednesday and Tuesday of this week, solidarity protests <clears throat> were held in cities around the country, with two occurring in Toronto. Pipeline proponents argue that since the company has already gotten approval by all 20 elected council leaders representing the nations whose lands the pipeline will pass through, the company has clear right of way. <clears throat> but opponents of the pipeline <clears throat> point out that in, 19, that in the 1997 Delgamuk decision, the Supreme Court of Canada stated, quote, land held by virtue of Aboriginal title may not be alienated <clears throat> because the land has an inherent and unique value in itself, which is enjoyed by the community with Aboriginal title to it. The community cannot put the land to uses which would destroy that value, end quote. It was the hereditary chiefs <clears throat> who provided the oral testimony on which that ruling was based, which recognized the fact that Wet'suwet'en and Gitsin lands had which recognized the fact that Ritsuit and Gitsin people had never given up their rights and title in any treaty. It also apparently recognizes the duty of those people to abide by their own laws. Wet'suwet'en members are also arguing that the elected band councils, which were put in place in order to make indigenous leadership recognizable by Canadian law in the, in the 1870s as part of the Indian Act, only have jurisdiction over reserve lands and not unceded territory, also known as stolen land, which includes most of British Columbia. The RCMP pointed out in a statement, uh, the RCMP originally put out a statement stating that the question of title is still up in the air, but then retracted their statement and said that the police shouldn't get involved. Regarding the question of hereditary leadership, Dr. Carla Tate of the Unistoten House Group <coughs> told Democracy Now!, quote, it's a highly stratified system in which hereditary chiefs belonging to each of the clans oversee their house group's territory, and they're responsible for stewarding it and ensuring that that land is available for use and benefit of their members to provide for them. The Wet'suwet'en law they abide by ensures that conduct on any respective house group's territory isn't going to negatively impact their neighbors. She went on to say, quote, Many industry projects have been consulting and reaching out to band councils in Canada, which only have jurisdiction within the boundaries of their reservations. And reservation lands make up less than 1% of the territory in Canada. And all of the reserves that have signed on with this project are not within the pathway of the pipeline. It goes through a number of traditional territories assigned or belonging to hereditary chiefs, who have all stated verbally their opposition to this pipeline and have never received any meaningful consultation, nor have they given consent to this project. BC NDP Member of Parliament Nathan Cullen pointed out that Parliament had just recently voted to pass the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and now the government appears to believe that that vote was a meaningless gesture. Molly Wickham of the Gedindam clan said Saturday night, quote, 
People like to think that things have gotten a lot better in so-called Canada and in our communities and that things aren't the same that they were 150 years ago. But it's false because we know right now, in this reality, that the state is willing and capable of using the same kinds of violence that they have used against our people for the last 150 years here. Jennifer Wickham of the Gidden clan stated, quote, Canada is choosing the pipeline over reconciliation with the Wet'suwet'en, and stated that the pipeline would, quote, affect every aspect of our lives. This is a remote part of the country, and people still, still sustain themselves traditionally here. People still have that relationship to the land. We still have our stories from our ancestors, and if a pipeline goes through, it will devastate those territories and we won't be able to access them. Now, as the Wet'suwet'en chiefs have made a temporary deal with the RCMP to allow workers through to access the area, Coastal GasLink President Rick Gateman posted an open letter on CoastalGasLink.com to British Columbia residents and First Nations, echoing the RCMP line that their only concern is safety and the law, stating rather ominously, quote, we respect the rights of individuals to peacefully express their point of view, as long as their activities do not disrupt or jeopardize the safety of the public, our employees, our contractors, and even themselves. So they're saying that the police are protecting the protesters from themselves. Just really quickly, I just want to underline uh, that what you're saying is you have a right to your opinion as long as you agree. Your right to your opinion is contingent on the fact that you understand that it has no teeth and you have no power. You may speak as long as you acknowledge it doesn't mean anything. Mm. Continue. And uh, since then, the Unistoten uh, camp released a statement on their website uh, stating, among other things, quote, The agreement we made allows Coastal GasLink to temporarily work behind the Unistoten gate. This will continue to be a waste of their time and resources as they will not be building a pipeline in our traditional territory. The injunction was against Werner Natsil, Frieda Hewson, and Jane and John Doe as individuals. Our efforts over the past month made the RCMP, Coastal GasLink, and the colonial governments recognize that this is not an issue, not an issue of individual protesters, but rather an issue of our, chief's of our house chief's jurisdiction to make decisions on our own lands. There can be no question that this is an issue of what Suetin writes in title. We have demonstrated that this fight is about more than a pipeline. It is about the right of indigenous peoples around the world to exercise free, prior, and informed consent. This week, the Canadian state laid siege to our land behind the smokescreen of reconciliation. We see through their attempts to further colonial violence and remove us from our territories. We remain undeterred, unafraid, and unseated. Yeah, I think... It's uh, the, the the part that I would pull from that is a sort of this this question of um, you know are we actually going to be doing anything different you know is this is this, is is this in this age of you know quote unquote truth and reconciliation uh, mean anything if if we are going to consistently you know decide when we get to do whatever we want. These are Trudeau's sunny ways. Well, <laughs> well, you know, and, and not only that, like there's a number of other like smaller, not smaller, but well, I guess smaller in the grand scheme of things, but still very, very important scenarios here. And that, you know, when they set up the blockade, they, that blockade that the RCMP set up also did not allow media through. No. Uh, and so there's a significant inability of media to get up there. Um, and, and so... And so there's sort of a, you know, they really did shut out this entire ability to understand. What they did was they saw the blockade, set up their own blockade, did not allow any media access or anybody else access, and then took, and then... Well, yeah, and and and, the, and 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 you know, in the camp themselves, um, you know, had a had a pretty clear, 
you know, pretty clear message of of, of while you know the, the the reason why they sort of came to this, this sort of agreement or this you know this sort of this sort of at least standing agreement right now isn't is as, as you quoted is not because they're sort of they've agreed to let this happen, mm-hmm. but because they were actually concerned for their own people's safety mm-hmm. uh, and and the safety of that that gate that that the RCMP was going to tear down provided. And yeah, so just to just to further spell that out, that is the threat of violence. Yes. Continue. Yeah. Yeah, um, I just I really feel like putting emphasis points today, right. <laughs> um, and that you know, and, and that and that's the question you have to ask. I think I think as as we'll sort of get at the end of the show, this sort of question of you know we can keep doing things that are slightly uh, that, that that we can say, say the better words, but if we keep doing things like this, and, and I think this is you know exerting sort of this you know colonial dominance uh, on 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 these lands, then all the words in the world are meaningless. And and I think it is a crisis of uh, of of understanding and imagination from the from from settlers like us uh, to what a world of an actual nation nation experience might look like that is sort of allowing this to perpetuate. Uh, and so I think the question that we all have uh, that I'll leave with you as we go to break. Uh, so we're gonna have a we'll go to music and have a second. Uh, is 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 what we can do to to understand and to fully actualize and, and, and see um, what what a nation-to-nation world can be. Um, and and does that, if and, and I think in some ways that inherently does mean, you know, like that, that these type of extractive projects uh, that run through lands that are not ours cannot happen. Uh, as much as it may be, as much as you know, uh, the the NDP. Uh, ironically, this is you know the NDP and the Liberals who are you know who are both you know the much 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 larger preachers of 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 the power of reconciliation than than the Conservatives are, who are both on on board with this project and trying to force it through. And so you know, if 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 the left can't even imagine a world of true nation to nation, then where do we go? Um, and I think that's the question that I think we need to try to figure out. Um, but with that. Uh, we will sort of get to a to a music break um, in in just a second, um, and uh, but but do you want to why don't we pro, why don't we preview what we're talking about next? Why don't you why don't we uh, why don't we highlight that? Yeah yeah. So um, so as uh, usual, our friends over at the CBC uh, will connect us with uh, uh, documentary filmmakers on occasion. So today we're going to be talking to Tom Ranson. When we get back from the break, uh, I as usual was able to um, see. Uh, the uh, interview documentary before we uh, went uh, this morning, so that was really great. Uh, and we're going to be talking to him when we get back in just a moment. Uh, I think we're going here. Yeah, we are. Uh, the, what? Uh, what kind of? Uh, we always have to get to, you know wonderful Canadian tunes from Megan. Uh, so there what we are we? What are we listening to uh, today? All right, we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or or our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all across the country. And we always say in outer space, but we never mean it so much <clears throat> as we do right now because we have uh, with us on the phone here Tom Ranson. Are you on the phone, Tom? 
I am. Hi there, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. You are the uh, director of a uh, a CBC documentary that is going to be playing, I believe, today, if I'm not mistaken, uh, live as we record this um, uh, tonight uh, as well. We'll get uh, through to the the view times and and whatnot at the end of the program, uh, but just to let people know that if they're interested, that they should be paying attention because their opportunity to see this will be very soon. Tom, I watched it this morning, and I, I always love documentaries. This is a, such a visually stunning one because we're talking about such a beautiful phenomenon. Can you please just start us all off on the same page here and just uh, just talk about what the Aurora Borealis is? Well, it's just a, a beautiful light show, isn't it? I'm sure Canadians already know, well, uh, who live in the north at least. For me in London, it was a, a real education going over and seeing the things. But they're these incredible light shows where the whole sky just lights up and it really is just showing us a really intimate, really, connection with the sun. Uh, it's kind of the star next door, we call it. It really is next door. It's sending out the solar wind. And that's interacting with the Earth's magnetosphere. And that interaction channels a load of charged particles, like ele- electrons, down to a big ring around the poles. And as those charged particles hit Earth's atmosphere, the Earth's atmosphere glows and it just creates these magical, beautiful patterns across the sky that kind of just take your breath away and took my breath away while we were away filming them. It's the first time I'd seen them while we were over there, and um, it was just phenomenal. One of the first things, Tom, that gets mentioned in the film is a, I, I don't believe it's meant to be a literal comparison, but if you can if you can flush that out a little bit, but a little bit of a relationship between the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis, and open flame. And there's an example with somebody, uh, just throwing an example, throwing some, some colored dust into a fire to give it uh, that example. But so yeah, many, many people will have seen it or seen images of it. Um, can you talk about what it is and why, uh, perhaps what we know at least so far, because we don't know everything, about why it looks so much like fire in the sky, where that living uh, aspect of it comes from? What are we actually looking at? Well, so it's what's actually happening is, I mean, the way I was always referred to it and spoke and spoke with Eric Donovan, the, the scientist who performs that little demo in the film about it, is that the gases are glowing, really. And so, uh, and what the northern lights are, the colors, the spectrum that's coming out is almost diagnostic. It's like a fingerprint of what the what the atmosphere is made up of. Because if you remember back at high school and you do your flame test, and that's essentially what we're showing in that little demo, is that different materials burn with different colors because and that's to do with the electronic structure of the, of the atoms or molecules themselves and the way the electrons within the material are excited. And, then, and as they get excited, uh, the electrons, they then they drop down a level, I mean, for want of a better phrase, and that throws out light, and the colour of that light is very specific to the material in question. So in the atmosphere, you've got oxygen that will shine or glow with a different colour to the nitrogen and a different colour to the hydrogen atoms, even. So the colours that you see in the, in the uh, northern lights are really giving you uh, an impression of the different gases that make up our atmosphere. 
Yeah, one of the one of the shots was, uh, or there was a, n- a number of shots directly up into the corona, uh, which is where it's hanging directly over you, and it sort of seems like it's spreading out. And the the impression that I got was very much of of being very small in a very giant centrifuge. It seemed like, you know, all the particles of of life or you know spirit or whatever. I mean, it's so easy to get very sort of fantastical with it because it's such an amazing experience. But it, is there a relation to? I mean, there is some relation, I guess, in a way to to some sort of a centrifuge in the sense that it's being separated out by weights and chemical properties and it, it kind of looks like it kind of seems like it's the, the world's largest science experiment we get to watch <laughs> yeah i mean that's the way the guy um the uh, the gentleman at caltech who we filmed with greg hallinan who's a really incredibly smart professor he kind of talks about it at the end of the show it's the it's kind of the, the sun's tentacles the sun's finger fingers are coming down and grabbing hold of the earth and it's really the whole thing the whole sense that i got while we were making the film was just how connected we are to the sun just the brute power of the sun and that's what i think creates that frisson when we see the things that there is that realization that we're part of something much 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 bigger than ourselves and just this it's just awesome and it genuinely is awesome we're connecting into processes that happen across the whole solar system and it's and it's just showing that connection between earth and the sun and those lights that kind of they kind of draw these emotions out of us and it's real why it's doing that because we are connecting to something big while we're looking at these things that's definitely why i thought i know what and the scientists who we were working with and following the, the brilliant guys at the university of calgary they all feel that strongly too there is this deep reaction that everybody has to the light uh, Tom, I have sort of a, a two-part question. I'm going to I'm going to shotgun two things in here and, and sort of let you sort it out as you as you wish. But there was sort of one aspect of it, which was you know a lot of the time I'm I'm personally a, a, anyone who listens to the show am a science enthusiast and I love reading science magazines. I always have. Um, and so one of the things that really stands out for me about this topic is that often when we're thinking about scientific discovery in 2018, now 2019, in you know in the current time, um, often these things are advancements in technology or some two, new type of microprocessor. Or, or a medical, these are things that are very small or have to do with like things that we just knew existed five minutes ago. That's why we don't know about them, right? Whereas something so big and in front of us, it seems like one of the few big mysteries that really stares us in the face on a daily basis that we really know so little about. I, I realize that's not actu- actually accurate, but it's sort of the way that it feels. It's, the, it's a very noticeable thing that we don't understand. Um, and so that's sort of part of it is, can you talk about why is it so still so mysterious? And then just tie in the sort of part two to that question is, one of the things that was mentioned was the ability of, of people with cell phones, so like common citizens actually participating in science. So kind of why don't we why don't we know why is there so much we don't know about it and then can you also just comment on the role of individuals participating in the science process yeah well i i guess in terms of why i mean one of the amazing things that from making the film was just realizing the enthusiasm of the group at uh, uh, the university of calgary and those guys are really pushing things forward you know the amount of funding that they're able to get and if you talk to eric donovan the group leader he talks about how canada really is in a position where this is one of the areas where it can lead the way really because it's such a magnificent position and to, to, to view the northern lights that you know there are there, in physics at least there are the you know the blockbuster experiments like the Large Hadron Collider or mm. the big space missions. Whereas Can- Eric kind of views the Northern Lights as a place 
as a, as a part of science that Canada can really say, look, this is what we can focus on and we can deliver stuff that is world-beating and no one else can do. And so I think the focus that he's brought onto the subject is really pushing it forward massively. I think that's one of the big things that's happening. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, well, another thing that he was talking about, the citizen science stuff that you mentioned, is that, I mean, the tech, he, he says it in the film, the technology just wasn't, that it used to be incredibly hard to get to image the Northern Lights. It was just very, very challenging for people to go out and do the work that, to, to get the data. Now, literally, everybody's got something in their pockets that lets them take pictures and record. And all that, that you know, it's the era of big data. And that is really beneficial to these guys in terms of, uh, w- w- what information it can give them. So in the film, we, we have the Aurora, Alberta Aurora chasers who are able to um, who identify Steve, this new phenomenon that Eric is then able to, 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 to try and ascertain what that is. And he has done, I think, in, since the film was broadcast. Um, citizen, these guys are able to really deliver cutting-edge science results, and that's an amazing thing, and I think that's going to happen more and more across a whole range of science, you know. Um, technology is in everybody's pockets, so enthusiasts can really make a difference, which is a, a great thing. I know um, I know, David was really impressed with that idea. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's and to the extent, I mean, I think one of the things they were talking about, there's sort of two sides of that, right? One of them was that, you know, these uh, non-professionals or these enthusiasts had participated, in, and you explore this directly in the documentary, uh, these enthusiasts or, you know, non-professionals uh, had uh, c- significantly contributed to scientific discovery and, and was leading off. And you, you walk through that in the film. So I don't want to give away all the details of that. Uh, the other idea was sort of just the one that where people could be contributing to science without even knowing it, just by posting their content, because they may not know what they're looking at, right? So an average person might just take a photograph and think, oh, that's very pretty. And then later on, some uh, data scientist goes and does a big scoop of Google images and, and turns out that they, they found something. I mean, it's really exciting. I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, it is absolutely. Uh, it, 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 there was, we were all really excited by it. And, and, and the level of enthusiasm within that community, I mean, just people sharing their images. It's just because it grabs everybody. Everybody looks at the Northern Lights and, you know, it's great fun to go out and take pictures of the things and share them and everyone's moved by it. And then exactly as you say, that data, it could just be, it's like diamonds in the dust, you know, who knows what's there. And so people, it's it's just a great thing to do. And there's other, there's not just, you know, it's not just uploading your data. You can also, you know, tweet. I think there's there are projects where people can t- sort of live update and tweet when they're seeing the lights. And so th- th- there, there are networks that, that social media are creating that are allowing the sort of understanding of the processes and the timing and what's happening up there with the lights. All of that information is just flooding through now, and people are figuring out ways of consolidating it and bringing it together and figuring out how to use it to find new things out. And it's, it's, I think it's not just with the Northern Lights that that's happening. It's across the board, and it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, just a side point, if you don't mind, if you'll forgive me for a moment, but something we talk about on the show a lot, and I think this is a really good example of it, is that just the idea that, you know, we talk, we spend a lot of time on the program talking about climate change and things like that. And, and a lot of that comes down to people, like just your average human, not having a really good understanding of how the scientific process works or how the scientific community comes to decisions and, and, and agreement and stuff like that. And I really see this as a, just as a quickly aside, uh, I see this type of thing, this sort of like getting people pulled into the scientific process 
list because they didn't even know they were contributing, but maybe, you know, sending that person an email, you know, saying, hey, we found something in your photo and congratulations, you discovered it. Would you like to name it? I just see this as a very important sort of society thing where we all get more involved in this process because we all need to take science more seriously. And I think that's easier to do when you when you think it's cool. <laughs> so that's just my yeah, side point for yeah, a second. If you, you know, want to comment, though. Well, no, you're completely right. I think anything that can engage people and turn people on to the to, to the wonder of the world around them and just the, the wonder of the scientific method, really, and how we can exp- how we can explain so much that once seemed like magic, and to be honest, that still has magical qualities to them. But even you know, it, it's explicable um, through through a certain method of thought. And yeah, if we can turn people onto that, then that's great. Yeah. So, uh, Tom, I just have uh, I just have like one or two short more questions for you here. Um, uh, before you go, and I, 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 I'm always trying to be very careful when I'm doing uh, documentary interviews to not give away the whole plot. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to tease something here, but don't worry, I'm not going to spoil it. So I just wanted to mention that there was a point in the movie where uh, a gentleman is describing a woman's story that was told to him. And I just wanted to let yeah. the audience know that I literally, literally cried. Uh, it was a oh. very heartwarming moment. Uh, it was yeah. very emotional, beautiful, beautiful, and it 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 just was. It was so such a nice from seeing as I'm talking to the director. Uh, it was really nice of you to put that in where you put it in, because um, I really feel like it was just starting to get sort of theoretical that the people that were not super sciencey may started to sort of like lose focus, and then you brought it right back in with such a gut punch, and it was just it's really well done. I really wanted to compliment oh. you on that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I know that the, the point you're talking about. I mean, we were we were all kind of there was sort of silence in the in the in the area we were in as um, as Don told us that story because yeah. it, it it just rang true and it, yeah. everyone kind of felt wow yeah that's a that that, that it just had a truth to it. Yeah, so it and you, and you sort of weren't expecting it, so that's both a, a promise to uh, go check it out and also a warning. <laughs> Uh, so my last uh, my last real question here. So is there, I like to end on sort of more sillier questions, not maybe silly, but more sort of fun questions. So one of the yeah. f- most famous action movie, well, not one of the most famous, one of the most sort of like a very '90s action movie thing was like this. Uh, there's several uh, movies with Kurt Russell in it and stuff like that, where like the sun goes supernova and that knocks out all technology, basically creates a big EM pulse and wipes out Earth. So it would not that necessarily that specific situation, but you show a bunch of graphics there where you're actually explaining what the relationship between these solar uh, ex- uh, explosions are um, and the Earth's electromagnetic field. And I found it, qu- I don't think this was your intention, but I found it quite alarming. Are we in any danger? <laughs> Well, no. I mean, well, it depends what you count as danger. I mean, we, <laughs> these things can—they—they they are quite powerful, and they do have big, a big impact on. You know, there was a black uh, communications and electricity grids. Electricity grids can be be knocked out by these um, geomagnetic storms, and so I mean, people are putting a lot of effort into figuring out ways. Uh, to mitigate that danger. I mean, one of the biggest ways to send up satellites to monitor and so people can figure out when something's sort of on target to impact Earth, not impact, but to hit Earth. And 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 then hopefully we can take precautions here to kind of make sure that things, transformers don't flip out in the grid and we don't have power cuts. But there are, these are majorly powerful things that are happening in space and they, they do impact Earth. Um, but they're not going to, you know, it's not like a doomsday scenario where it's going to wipe us out and we're all going to get fried and burn. It's just, it's about our communication systems and it's about our electricity systems. But no, they are very, um, 
very powerful things, these geomagnetic storms. And so we have to study them and understand them and know how our technologies will be affected by them. Tom, it's been such a pleasure to have you with us. Cool. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Cheers. Can you, uh, just before you go here, uh, I just want to make sure I get all the dates and stuff right. Do you have it there in it's front of you? Sunday. How many people are going to check this out? Uh, if you want to just list it's through on, the dates and times. Well, it's on Sunday uh, 8 p.m. on CBC. Uh, that's my understanding. 8 p.m., yeah. And so, we'll, we'll make sure we have the yeah. actual links up on the website there. Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, and then Super. hopefully, if uh, if they miss that, um, uh, hopefully there will be other opportunities. We'll link to the website of the project uh, directly on the show as well. Again, thank you so much for your time, uh, Director uh, Tom. And why do I not see your last name? Tom Ranson, thank you so much for your Tom time. Tom Ranson. No problem. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Have a great Cheers. day. Cheers. Have care. a great day. Bye. All right, so that's uh, that's going to do it for our second interview. Um, Stefan, we're going to be back with a pre-record uh, from you in a moment, but it's going to be your pre-recorded voice. So, uh, yeah, it's true. There we go. All right, so uh, Megan, what's our second and final music break? I see you, boy. I see you, boy. Joining us now from Council of Canadians is Tara Sicheran. Uh, and just what does Council of Canadians do? What, what are you all about? Uh, we do everything. Um, we're a 33-year-old organization uh, formed out of uh, NAFTA, the first NAFTA. Mm. Um, and you could sort of think of us as a um, very much citizen-oriented group. So we do a lot on healthcare. Our big thing is water and water rights democracy issues, um, you know, climate justice issues, you name it, we're pretty much involved in that. And, and just, just for clarity, when you say coming out of NAFTA, that was not, NAFTA did not create this. It was no. that you were in response to NAFTA. Yes, it was uh, basically saying Canada should not be in this deal. This very, very, as we've turned out to see, it's, it's not been a benefit to Canada. NAFTA 2.0, as they're calling it, is not going to be a benefit to Canada either. Um, but yeah, it was a very much a citizen-led movement to say, why are we entering this unfair trade deal with the U.S.? All right. Uh, so what is your big idea from 2019? Uh, okay. So my big idea for 2019 is the rapid worldwide increase of climate justice movements. All right. What does that mean? <laughs> um, I think everybody should more or less be familiar that the United Nations uh, IPCC report, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, came out last month. And it pretty much says that we have 12 years to keep worldwide temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So if we don't do that, there's going to be massive uh, irrevocable changes and this has alarmed people because it's really written by scientists. And scientists, as you know, use very conservative language. They don't really like to do extremes on anything. And for scientists to say, you've got 12 years, otherwise life as we know it's going to change, that woke a lot of people up. Yeah. And, 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 so, and so with that, with that waking up, uh, what is the – now that we're awake, what do we do? <laughs> um, I think what we're seeing is that there's a lot of global movements that are happening. Um, Council of Canadians, uh, other like green environmental groups, we have always been there. We are on the front. You can call us, quote-unquote, the usual suspects. <laughs> but I think we need to be more radical ourselves. We need to organize with people, not just within our little like environmental silos, but maybe with labor movements, with faith groups, uh, student groups. You know, everybody needs to come together and work on this. 
And like there have been some really energetic, great energizing examples that have happened recently. So um, uh, Greta Thunberg from Sweden, uh, the 15-year-old who's doing the school strike. She's she, got some great quotes. Some of, she's this, some of her quotes are so good. Yeah, actually, I've got one of them, yes. actually. Um, she's, she was at the UN COP24 talks in Poland, and she said, we have not come here to beg world leaders to care. We have come here to let them know that change is coming. So, I mean, she's been very inspiring for one person, one individual. I mean, that's pretty much gone global, worldwide. They have the Fridays for Future movement where they're encouraging kids to go and camp out in front of your governmental buildings and demand climate change. Um, Right here, uh, December 7th, we had one at Queen's Park which had a couple hundred uh, kids, wow. teenagers, all showing up and, you know, demanding change. Um, so that's one example. Um, the Extinction Rebellion that's been happening in the UK. Last month, they had 6,000 people occupying five bridges in downtown London. Um, and it's not that they occupied the bridges, <clears throat> excuse me, for a little bit, and then they moved on. But like every week, every couple of days, they're doing another action. They're doing another event. And again, this is something that it's not organized by any specific group. It's just people who care. Um, A lot of scientists, a lot of academics have signed on to it as well. And it's gone global. Again, we've had an event here in Toronto last month, uh, the same day, in support of it. uh, Greenpeace and 350, they did a die-in event to give them support and solidarity. Um, In Quebec... Uh, Environment News, they have launched a lawsuit against the government demanding climate action for those under 35 years old because they're the ones who are going to be disproportionately affected. Um, And we've had, again, examples of that happening in the U.S. and elsewhere. And in the U.S., the Sunrise Movement. Yeah, they're they're doing doing so much right now. Yeah, I mean, demanding that the entire U.S. goes to 100% renewables by 2020 or within 2030. I mean, that's insane because yeah. they're the like second largest polluter in the world. Yeah. And, and there are some states that that's an 80 percent. You know, I think it's West Virginia's 80 percent coal powered still. Right. This, this would be a serious, serious shift. Yeah. And I mean, I think also you have to look at the political context of where we are right now, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the U.S., you know, legally speaking, any government documents can't have the words climate change in it any lower. Uh, here in Ontario, under, you know, Doug Ford. Um, you know, playing the environmental commissioner's office, uh, opening up the green belt for development. I mean, we're living in times where the politicians don't seem to get it, or even if they do get it, they're willfully ignoring it. And they're trying to get as much as they can right now uh, while they can get away with it. Yeah. And, and, and so we have to, we basically have to, you know, stop letting them get away with it to some extent, right? Exactly. And so, and so I want to sort of dive into that a little bit. So you sort of, you sort of said your big idea was, was a global rise of, 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 of climate justice movements. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have two questions off of that. The first is if you can sort of define what climate justice means to you. Uh, and then, and then the second is, is, is what does that look like? How do we say, how do we as, as ordinary citizens um, or, uh, or, or, or of groups or anything, how do, how do we buy in, how do we buy in and support that kind of, that kind of, you know, groundswell, I guess we'll say, but start with the climate justice. What does climate justice mean to you? I'd only accuse you of like actually reading my notes before this, except <laughs> you didn't. Um, yeah. Uh, climate justice. Um, so I'll give you a concrete example. 
uh, last month we had the Toronto People's Assembly on Climate Justice. It was the seventh one that was held in Toronto since 2010. And um, this is something the Council of Canadians has been involved with, but it's also a lot of other environmental groups, faith groups, union groups, uh, U of T, Ryerson, a lot of the you know, people who don't necessarily, they, they support each other, but they don't necessarily work together. Um, but they do come together and work on this. It's entirely funded from individuals and groups. They take no money from the government. They don't apply for grants. Um, over 250 participants came. We had 20 great speakers. Um, and it's it's very, it's not about climate change. It's climate justice. Because we were hearing about people who are living in what, you would call the global south and they were talking about you know mining and mining injustice and a lot of the mining companies are all canadian and canadian based right um they were talking about migrant justice so coming to work here as a laborer and it's not because they're coming here to quote unquote steal your jobs but because they have no choice they want a better life for themselves or they have to support their family back home um they're talking about how the laws that canada has put in place against coming up here and being able to get status, right? You're in a very precarious position. You're hearing from people who are directly affected. And they aren't necessarily the people that you hear from because they can't afford to speak out. They're scared. They're afraid of what would happen if they speak out. And hearing it from that perspective, it's not just about you know carbon numbers and figures. Those are important, of course. But it's hearing from the people who are already affected. And that, for me, is the important part. That's the justice part. Yeah. So these are these are people who sort of are already experiencing some of the worst parts of climate change, and and that's sort of, and that's the the, the justice is for them as well as as the future generations. Exactly. Okay. May, may I ask a question? Yeah. Go. Mm. Um, I'm wondering. So, do you you in 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 your work? Do you speak with uh, leaders of other groups and so forth, labor groups and so forth? Uh, yes. Um, we try to. Uh, so I'll give you another example, uh, TCAN, Toronto Climate Action Network, which uh, Stefan is part of as well. Or the Green Majority is a, is a member. Yes, we are exactly. a member organization. Yeah, yeah um, we are trying very hard. We just did a whole re-envisioning exercise. And part of it is because we needed it, but part of it is how do we react to the current political movement that we find ourselves in and how do we become more responsive? Mm. Um, Council of Canadians is doing the exact same thing right now as well. And it's not just talking to your usual friends and your usual allies. It's going beyond that. And, you know, why can't we have TTC writers be a part of our group? Why can't we have transit group and healthcare groups and, you know, beekeepers and everybody? Like, climate doesn't just affect the environmentalists. It affects everyone. And when you you speak with these groups, uh, do you find that there are sometimes intransigent, like, conceptual barriers or ideological barriers uh, in terms of finding a common dialogue? Because I don't know how widespread it is, but um, I've found at least uh, on the internet that leftists can get very quite contentious and um, rooted in their own orthodoxy. What? Leftists can't agree? <laughs> no, this doesn't. We have no experience of that. That's uh, that is just, I just don't understand. Um, yes and no. Um, I think it's a little hard for people who are very deeply rooted in the environmental movement to see anything outside of it. You live in your own bubble. Um, And it's a very nice bubble sometimes, but you have to go beyond that. 
Um, I think, it, again, it goes back to taking it down to the personal level. So even if you're speaking to somebody who is completely right-wing and completely whatever, they may have a, a child with asthma, for example, um, who has asthma attacks when the air quality is bad. So wouldn't it be great if we could take more cars uh, off the road and have like, you know, electric uh, vehicles instead or better transit? Or you talk to somebody who maybe isn't uh, politically active, but it's because they have three jobs and they live in Scarborough and they spend three hours in transit back and forth every day, right? And they'd like to do more, but they can't. So you have to also be the one to talk for them and represent them. Um, and I, I think once you bring it back down to the personal level, people care. Like Council of Canadians is big on water. Our chairperson, Mort Barlow, was uh, with the UN helping them pass the human right for water. Wow, uh, Mort Barlow is still, still active, eh? Man, I remember that. They had to read so much of their work uh, it's going through environmental studies and, you know, the three or four serious texts are were they're still so they're still still working and, and doing doing work. Sorry, that's this interesting. Yeah, she actually was uh uh doing it's Nobel Prize Week and she gave her a report there last week. Oh, so wow. yeah. Maud Barlow. Maud yeah. Barlow, yeah. Mm. Um and she's all up in about the human right for water. And that's something people care about. Like it doesn't matter what your political opinion is. You want to drink clean water, <laughs> right? And I mean, one of the most successful things we've done is a stop Nestle. Uh, it's a boycott mm. because Nestle, as we all know, is going in and taking the groundwater from small communities and making a fortune selling bottled water. And it's usually the communities that already have droughts or, you know, they don't have clean water themselves. And it's a huge multinational corporation that's making a f obscene amount of money off a good or, or a product. They'd like to refer to it as a good or product, but it's actually belonging to the people. Like water is a right. It's mm -hmm. not like running shoes. It's not a commodity. Yeah. And I believe it, I believe it was the Nestle chairperson who was quoted as saying basically that water should be privatized. Uh, and that has sort of followed them around very rightfully since. Um, but I want to get back to sort of this, this, this question of, 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 there we see uh, we see a groundswell, and I do actually think I had this I had this point previous on a previous episode of the show about how I do actually think that in the last little while I've seen more sets of different actions all happening at the same time, which was which felt different than previous experiences of activism. And like I feel like pre in the previous years um, I felt really relatively consistently that. The environmental movement was like, okay, we're doing this thing now, and then we're doing this thing now, and then we're doing this thing now. Whereas in the last, you know, we're in the last, uh, I'd say, six months even, you know, with the Sunrise Movement and with, you know, uh, Future Fridays and with all these other things, I feel it was almost as if there's a, there is a bit of a groundswell uh, of, of, of a diversity of actions from a diversity of players. Uh, and so I guess the, the question is, what can we do to support this? And, and, and sort of like, if you have, we have a big idea for our teams that this should happen, uh, how do we actualize that? Right. Um, I think the the best way to do it is not for us to sit down in uh, lovely, sheltered, beautiful Toronto and come up with ideas of how to do it, but it's to look at people who are already on the front lines. And the example I'm going to give is the Unistoten camp out in British Columbia. Um, it's a First Nations territory. They have their traditional unceded lands. They have been resisting gas and... Um, oil pipelines going through their territories for nine plus years, right? Like actively maintaining a camp, 
year round in the middle of winter under very harsh conditions saying you're not allowed to come here to do exploration or testing or drilling or anything because we don't give consent. Mm. Um, and what is happening right now is uh, TransCanada wants to put one of the largest uh, fracked gas pipelines. It's going to be a $6.2 billion pipeline through their territory. And they actually took them to court and they had an injunction saying that you're preventing us from going in there and doing the groundwork. Um, as of spring next year, they want to start doing the drilling and the prep work for that pipeline. Um, so there was a very inspiring action that happened in Toronto. Um, people went down to TransCanada's uh, Toronto headquarters on Bay Street, and it was about 200 people. And they occupied the offices and they gave them a very large trespass notice to say it's not really that you guys like that Union Stoats and people are blocking you. You guys are actually the trespassers. Right. Um, it's not legally binding, of course, but it did raise a lot of media attention. The people in BC felt the support here. And we actually do have a uh, GoFundMe that's happening online. It's the Toronto Solidarity for Unistoten Land Defenders. Uh, we've had a goal for $5,000. We've raised over 3,000 of it within a very, very quick short time. And that's what they need because they have to now launch a counter lawsuit. And as we know, lawsuits cost money, right? So um, support what's happening. Like Unistoten, they're calling for boots on the ground. They're calling for people to come out there right now and help them. Um, you know, we're going to see a lot coming from there. And I, I'm not the one to say it, but people have said this is basically going to be our standing rock for Canada, right? Mm. Right. Um, and, and, and which, which, and hopefully goes a little bit better for, for, for our side, of course, <laughs> or the, the side of the, the people sort of defending the land. Um, and, and so, uh, my experience of the, say the past 10 years, uh, say from 2010 to 2020, uh, obviously we're not at 2020 yet, but we're getting there, uh, has been a, a realization, I think in some ways in the environmental movement that climate justice is required. Uh, you know, I think it, I, I, I'd point out to some of the, the people's climate movement that sort of, I would say, did a good job, at least in Toronto and other places, putting that a little more front and center um, and in and, and bringing sort of, you know, the, the indigenous rights and, and labor movements and, and sort of this justice idea to to the to the fore of, of climate protests specifically, uh, you know, and especially sort of understanding that, like, the, the directly affected should be in the front lines of not only if they're in the front lines of the of the actual fight, they should be in the front lines of protests, right? Like, you know, they, they that that should they should be centered in in all the ways you can, um, and I'm so I'm intrigued in, in sort of your perspective, given that you've sort of been in this movement for for quite some time. Sort of where you sort of see the uh, do you do you feel the same thing? Do you sort of how do you project out in the next uh, in the next ten years? Do you think we do you think we find a way to sort of uh, to move more towards that and more and, and, and is that is that the movement building uh, angle that we that we need to find or like do we need to, is that how we get real justice? Yeah, I, I think justice is a pretty universal concept. Um, once you tell people of, you know, actual human experiences, um, bring it back down to the personal level, um, it, it, it takes a very hard-hearted person to not care, right? And then you say, well, how is this, how can we make this right? How is it not fair that these people are, uh, migrant workers are coming to Canada and every year they have to reapply and they're in a precarious position? And these are the same workers who are probably 
you know, working in the farms for Ontario and you talk about that 100 mile diet and, you know, you go to President's Choice and there's a smiling, usually white farmer on the produce and coming locally. But I mean, it's migrant workers who are doing the fruit picking and the, the caring of the farms, right? That's not fair. Um, when you talk about people who have to leave their country because Canadian mining companies are there and they're burning their houses and killing people and killing activists. I mean, the, the British uh, newspaper, The Guardian, they actually have a series of activists who've been killed. Oh, yeah. And they have a running track of that, right? I mean, that's alarming. You're being killed because you want to protect your land, you want to protect your family, you want to protect your right to life. It, it, it's, you know, so people, I think, care more about that rather than, I mean, don't get me wrong. I came from a science background. I love my carbon figures and my projections and all of that as well. But people sort of, mm, I think right now are like oversaturated when it comes to numbers. So you have to break through that and you have to like bring it down to the human level. Yeah. And I, and I, and I certainly think there's a level of which yeah, there's, I'll, there's a, there was a quote that sort of came at me. Uh, I was at a talk a couple a couple weeks ago, and um, there was it was a conversation surrounding uh, art and climate change. Uh, and someone and, and the host was uh, it was the was the host was also the host of the Cross Connect Checkup, and he was talking about how he had posted this thing about polar bears, and someone responded basically saying like, you know, the inf- I don't know what to believe anymore. Environmentalists aren't changing, so why should I? Uh, and he, that, that sort of question is posted to the post to the group, and it just didn't really get a great answer. And, I, and part of my thought was it does still right now feel like all of us are still going on living basically the same life uh, and then being like, oh, but now it's 410, now it's 411, now it's 412, you know, counting up the, the you know, part per million of carbon in the atmosphere while never actually changing sort of what we are doing on a daily basis. And it, and it, and it does seem like these types of stories are, are a much stronger way to sort of communicate the, the impact that we are having. Um, and so we're, we are coming up to the sort of the tail end of the of the time here. So I want to give you a chance uh, to to a sort of uh, like obviously Council Canadians. I don't know if that needs a huge call out, but maybe maybe let us know what we can support, how to sort of move forward on this issue, uh, and anything that you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to. Yeah, uh, if you want to check uh, Canadians.org, we, there's a lot of info that gets posted up all the time. Um, we're pretty good at like supporting other groups and letting you know what's happening. So that's a pretty easy way to sort of stay in touch what's happening in Canada, especially. Um, Get involved. Like you don't necessarily have to join a group if that's not your thing. Um, I think for the longest time, we've only been focusing on organizations. And I say this as somebody who's coming from organization (laughs) background, but the power of the people, the power of individuals as well, you don't have to join a group. I mean, there is a benefit in that sort of format, but if you find one, if you don't find one, then as a person, just get involved. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Like you said, the sort of grassroots groundswell that's happening right now. Um, I think I think of it as like throwing everything in the kitchen sink approach, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, at this point, we don't have the luxury of time to find the perfect silver bullet answer to anything. So throw every single approach that you have, and hopefully one of them works. Um, and in a, in a way, you can almost think of like when people say they're woke about like racist issues or racism. Um, I think people need to get a bit more woke in terms of the climate. And this is not just the numbers and figures aspect, but like really, what is your life going to look like? What are your kids' life going to look like? What are your grandkids' life going to look like? 
I mean, 12 years is not very far. And life as usual cannot just keep on going, as you said, the way that we've been doing it. 